This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So it's my pleasure to welcome again to the UX Australia stage, Michelle Berryman. Um, Michelle, in, in, in my mind, the, the experience that sort of stands out for me um, is Michelle trying to give, this is a couple of years ago now, Michelle trying to give a design review of a range of products, and we'll just use that <laughs> phrase, a range of products to a group of judges at a judging panel um, who couldn't stop, I want to say giggling, but like these are all sort of adults um, giggling at the products themselves. Uh, Michelle stuck to it and gave a very, very good detailed design critique about this range of products um, and I was super, super impressed. She held it together with an audience of people who were just losing it constantly. So um, that has nothing to do about <laughs> this, just wanted to convey to you uh, just that little snippet and I won't tell you what the range of products were um, but it was uh, an industrial design competition. Anyway, uh, with that said, and hanging in the air, please join me in welcoming Michelle to the stage. Thank you, Steve. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, it was a range of sex toys because <laughs> nothing is you know, more uncomfortable than meeting somebody for the very first time and being faced with a table with 35 adult toys on them, some of which were not immediately recognizable in terms of their actual usage. Um, and yes, knowing that you had an audience of people watching you and that you're being photographed and videoed while you were discussing this, but you know, sometimes you just do the things you gotta do. So uh, I'm very happy to be here today to be kind of talking in this fundamentals track, and I think that the things that I'm gonna talk about really build on some of the stuff that Denise mentioned this morning and certainly some of the stuff that Steve uh, just talked about. And that's this idea around insights and interviews and um, and doing some research um, and, and learning about your project. So I work for a consulting firm in the US called Liquid Hub. Um, we are about 2,000 people. Um, half of that team is offshore. The other half is in the US. Um, our primary clients tend to be the CMO or the CIO, CTO kind of person. Um, in the United States, the CMO the average CMO has a tenure of only two years, so they're very sort of project-focused. And for that matter, the CIOs are as well. Projects come in, they need them done. And we rarely have the luxury of the time and the budget to do the kind of actual, real, formal research that we want to do. And that's kind of always the problem that we've got. But that doesn't mean that we don't do the research, and it doesn't mean that we don't try and carve out the time. So today I'm gonna to talk a little bit about how we do that, some of the things that we do. I'll set the stage a little bit on our thinking, do a case study that is kind of an interesting and fun one, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about actual stakeholders, the pigs and chickens model, and uh, I'll build a little bit on what Steve just said about you know, interviewing people. So I think that as uh, UX designers, working anywhere in the experience design field, um, the approach that we have to problems um, makes a difference. It makes a difference in how we think about things and you know, you get a new project and it's really exciting and you immediately just like wanna jump in and start solving the problem, right? 
you want to start designing things because that's what we do. We're designers. But I think it's important to kind of back up a minute, realize that we're digital anthropologists. We have a lot to learn. Like we're inherently digital by nature. That's why we're in the field that we're in and why we do the things that we do. But we're also really on the far end of the bell curve on this. We're much more digital than most of the clients that we work with, most of the end users who are absorbing the products and services that we work on. And we're, by nature, kind of early adopters. So it's important to kind of step back and, and take all that knowledge but realize that, again, we're a little bit ahead of most people. So use it as a superpower. Use it to build on. Um, understand customers. So our company has a, a good process and methodology for how we we go about learning about customers and end users. And I'll kind of use customer and end user sort of interchangeably here. Um, but it's important to remember that in most cases, you're not the end user. You're not the customer. That's not always true. But even when it is true, you have to act like it's not true. And you have to learn. You've got to gather insights anywhere that you can get them. And even when you don't have a formal research budget, there are a lot of ways that you can gain insights that you can learn you can expand your knowledge. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it is the ability to take the business objectives that your client has and blend that with the needs of the customer, the user-centered uh, context that's going to take place, and bring experiences to life. Um, I think Steve made the comment that the people that you interview are often not the people that you're designing for. And that is so very true almost all of the time. So. It's this broad perspective that allows you to design for those end users. So one of the projects that I've worked on the last few years that turned out to be one of my most favorite projects was uh, we were engaged to do a 36-month uh, digital e-commerce strategy for a grocery retailer. And you know the interesting thing about that is that we're all grocery shoppers, right? It's the thing that we do. So we kind of are the users here. But, but kind of not also. And as we got into this, what we realized very quickly is nobody likes to grocery shop. In fact, it's like a huge chore. It's the number one chore that most people say that they have. So how many of you like to grocery shop? Well, a few of you like to grocery shop. Some people do. Um, but for the most part, it's again, it's a thing. And it's complicated. Um, we actually did do some field work and some shop-alongs with people. I grabbed this photo in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And this woman was not one of our participants. But she came zooming by, and I just like grabbed this candid shot of her. And she was so focused. She was so intent. You know, she had her list. She had the baby that was asleep, and like that clock's ticking on the baby. She's trying to get out of there before the baby wakes up and the cart's full of the baby, and so the groceries are piled up. And, like, this woman was on a mission. And it was also the coldest day of the year in Kentucky, and the temperature was far below zero, which was really, really unusual, and the grocery store was freezing cold. So, you know, she's got a sleeping baby. It's cold. Everything about this day is miserable for her. But I think that this embodies a lot of how people think and feel about grocery shopping. And this image actually became the iconic image for the entire engagement that we had with, with the client. So over the course of this project, um, the formal research budget to actually go and do the shop-alongs didn't come until we were 
probably about three months into the project. And we were able to justify it based on the other things that we had done along the way, which included a lot of, of review and research of existing studies, of uh, client-based uh, documents. Um, this client was already working with the idea of building out a digital uh, grocery list app. So we reviewed a lot of other kinds of shopping apps and list-based apps. Um, we reviewed how people take notes and make lists and how they refer to things um, when they are shopping. So the interesting thing is that the client had already committed to the concept of SKU-level detail on everything in their entire catalog, which is more than 30,000 products in the grocery store. So um, what's kind of funny, though, is that nobody like, makes a list that says uh, you know, milk, comma, whole, comma, you know, one gallon or something like that. You just say milk. You don't say milk, comma, whole, comma, one gallon, comma, Mayfield Dairies. You just say milk. You know, you, you don't necessarily write out every ingredient that you're going to put into a salad. You just write salad. Because you kind of know what you're going to put in salad. So it's hard to make a list in digital that's got skew level detail when people don't actually talk that way and think that way. And they were also really interested in the fact that people would walk through the grocery store kind of, you know, like this. They'd have their list. And they just would go and they'd get all the things that they needed. And nobody does that. So we learned a lot about things. We learned a lot about the company to start with. Um, you know, this is easy stuff to learn. Um, these are the kinds of stats and things that are found in annual reports. It's the kind of stuff that you can Google. This is two hours of research time. This isn't going to break any client's budget. You can do this. You need to do this. So, you know, we learned a lot of interesting things. Um, our client in this case was Kroger, the second largest retailer in America and the fourth largest retailer in the world. I didn't know that. Um, founded in 1883, over 7 million transactions a day. They had a real aversion to the idea of working with personas um, or even doing a lot with uh, market segments because they had this idea that, well, everybody is our customer. We can't possibly design things for, you know, soccer moms because we also have to design things for uh, people who are on food stamps and for really affluent families and for, you know, college kids. And that kind of fear of designing for anybody in particular meant that they were not doing a great job of designing for anybody. So as we went through this whole process, we did all this reading. We learned about the overall industry. We learned a lot about what was happening with budgeting, couponing, um, digital couponing. We learned about food and cooking because essentially, you know, that's the heart of why we go to the grocery store. We're going to eat the food. We learned that uh, people cook the same seven or eight things all the time, that um, low-income families in particular really worry about providing nutritious meals for their kids. We learned that families in general worry about eating meals together, that they don't do that enough. We discovered that in 1900, 2% or, uh, Less than 2% of all meals were eaten outside of the home, and today it's over 50%. So we're doing a lot less cooking. And we don't know as much about food as we once did. We discovered that 28% of Americans say they don't know how to cook. 
And I have a feeling that it's actually a higher number than that. We also learned that 20% of kids in Australia think that pasta comes from animals. <laughs> this is a Jamie Oliver stat, actually. Um, but the point is, we did a lot of this legwork, and this was low cost to the client. This was our time. This was pouring over things. This was having the conversations internally with our team. And Denise referenced that this morning with a quote from Dubberly Design Group about the fact that design requires a lot of conversations to happen. And some of those are with yourself, and some of those are with a broader team. So once we really felt that we had a good knowledge of, of what grocery shopping was about, of the kind of trends that people had around food, around cooking, around eating, around health and wellness, diet, around budgeting, um, around use of technology and bringing digital experiences into physical environments. Um, we were really ready to, to kick this project off in earnest. And fortunately, we had a little bit of front-end time where we could learn some of these things before we went into our stakeholder interviews with the client. And we, we talked to several people. Um, we took good notes, and I'll get into that here in a few minutes. But we learned some, some interesting and key things. So our primary client, the one who was actually paying the bills for us to be there, was a guy named Matt. And he pretty quickly identified the objective here. So we had a clear understanding of what he was trying to do. So grow shopper loyalty and increase sales by using digital to engage customers and create an extraordinary shopping experience. Extraordinary. Okay. We also learned that Kroger's a really traditional conservative company. And in fact, uh, I didn't have a direct quote to pull from this, but in all of the work that we did with them, they would routinely sit in meetings and when pricing came up or you know, how much it would cost to develop an experience or to do field research, they would put it in the context of how many cans of cream corn they would have to sell. And in 2013, when we were doing this work, a can of cream corn was 88 cents. And margins in grocery are only about 1% to 2%. So like, this is a company that's really thinking thoughtfully about every penny that they're spending on things. And it's not that they won't spend the money, but they realize that they have to spend it smartly. And they are very conservative, and they do move very slowly. And grocery as a whole is not an adventurous sort of industry when it comes to digital exploration. Um, so that was reiterated here with the idea that we need to manage expectations as things flow from decision to execution. This is a company that's not going to move fast. They're going to consider everything. Um, we were also told very early on that Stephanie was the most important stakeholder, that nothing would happen until she was part of the conversation. So that was a really key piece of information for us to know. We met Stephanie twice. Um, we worked with Kroger for two solid years. Apparently, we convinced Stephanie that we knew what we were doing, and I don't know whatever happened to Stephanie, but um, it was good information at the start of this to realize that we needed to engage her, and she was copied on things. She stayed in the loop on things, but she let us do our jobs. Um, we also learned that one of their biggest challenges was uh, growing their team and, and building the right resources internally to actually execute against whatever digital ideas we might come up with. And 
we found that their definition of a digital household was simply anybody who had given them an email address or who had redeemed a digital coupon. So that's a really, really low barrier. Keep in mind, this is 2013. This is six years after the iPhone has come out. So probably none of us in this room in 2013 would have defined a digital household this way. But that, that's where we were. Um, they also had this idea of let's be destructive. The sky's the limit. Blue sky. We want you guys to go as far as you can. Like, we really want to do things. Our only constraint is budget. <laughs> but they're like this super conservative company. Like they're giving us contradictory information, right? But they're telling us the things that are really important for us to know. So the pattern that we saw here was a desire to go far, but far for them was not nearly as far as it was for us. So that meant that we had to kind of stop shorter than we wanted to. And that's fine. Um, we found out that they had this idea that Kroger was a destination for a lot of customers, which seems like a really aspirational kind of comment to make about a grocery chain. Um, but they also had a lot of concerns about the fact that if you required people to log in to access anything, that you had to really deliver value against that. So there was a lot of respect for their customers, and they really wanted to make sure that they were making good decisions. So that also told us a lot about them as a company. So as we do all this and we learn and we're, we're working with them, um, we did get the permission to go and actually talk to customers. Because we, we pointed out that customers really were stakeholders in this whole thing. And we did these, this great shop-along research, and it was a very formal sort of process, like Steve pointed out. You know, we had the discussion guides. We had the whole methodology down. Um, we specifically recruited people on criteria such as um, they had to use a list. Half the people um, had to be a paper list kind of household, and half the people had to be using some sort of digital list. Um, we were agnostic about what form that took. Um, we brought them in. We, we made them tell us about their lists and show us any of their coupons and talk to us about how they plan things. And then we shopped with them. And so we found out how they made decisions. And, you know, they did all kinds of interesting things in the store, including call back home to see if we were really out of yogurt or I can't remember which brand of milk we're supposed to buy. Like, it was really unusual or odd, I thought, that people didn't know some of the brand stuff. But it was like, oh, well, my husband drinks this kind of milk, and I, don't, I can't remember what it is. He usually buys the milk he wants. I buy the milk for myself and the kids. So um, again, you know, kind of interesting and different from how we shop in my family and different from how my colleagues and coworkers shopped. So while we all shop, we clearly are not doing it the same way or through the same lenses. And we learned things like paper lists, they're really quick and they're easy, and if you drop it, it doesn't break. And, you know, if you get stuff spilled on it, it doesn't matter. And if you forget it or lose it, well, it's really not the end of the world. And people had lots of ways of dealing with things and stacking coupons and holding on to things while they shopped. And like, there was this familiarity with it and comfort with it. At the same time, it had a certain cumbersome quality to it. But when you introduce digital, it became a lot more complicated. Because now you're, you're having to hold a phone. You're picking up heavy things. You're picking up things that require two hands. You're picking up things that are wet sometimes, like they've just sprayed down the produce and it's damp. Um, 
you're shopping with your kid, and your kid wants the phone because your kid wants to play games or listen to music or you know, just do whatever, and you're having to take the phone away from the kid, so now you're like in this battle. And then you've got this stuff like people were precariously balancing phones as they moved through the store, and they would occasionally like slide through the cracks, and nobody broke a phone while we were there. But we did you know, realize and have to have a discussion about the fact that when you drop your phone and break it in the store, that is not a delightful brand moment, <laughs> right? And so what does that mean? And we uncovered a lot of interesting things doing this work. So one of the things that we uncovered is that actually what makes a list, a digital list, better than paper is not skew level detail, and it's not uh, knowing you know, all of your acronyms and things, but it is, in fact, giving you a list that maps to the store floor plan so that you can get through your shopping in the most effective and efficient way possible, which is not something that had come up at any point in any of the conversations internally with Kroger. The other thing that makes a list magical is if it magically surfaces things for you along that journey, like, oh, you've got chicken breasts here. Well, here's a great recipe for chicken. And it uses four of the ingredients that are already on your list today. Or here's this recipe and a coupon because the chicken that you want is actually on sale today. And you didn't necessarily know that. So the ability to do that kind of thing, the ability to show people how they're spending their money, how they're saving their money, um, budget-conscious people really care about things like this. And they do want to know where their money's going. And they want to understand how healthy their basket is. So all of the stuff came out of actually talking to both the internal stakeholders who made us aware of the kinds of technologies and capabilities that they were developing, and then listening to real people express the needs that they had when they were in the store, or more to the point, express the frustrations that they had while they were in the store. So we were able to kind of marry up these ideas and come up with ideas that, that had not come to the, the surface in any of the conversations internally with clients. So I, I like this example because it's one of those that evolved and it started off with no budget for research and no formal way of actually gaining insights and yet we made the best of it and we really turned it into something nice and Kroger is actually developing the tools and the concepts um, that we initially ideated three years ago. And they're not all in the market yet and some of them won't be in the market for a while because there are big technology limitations to doing this and that's okay. Uh, the path that they're on is the right path, and they are using this kind of research technique and technology or the, the mechanisms to learn more about what people need and to think more holistically about how digital can enhance the experience and not fundamentally make it a whole different experience if that's not appropriate. Uh, so it's not about walking through the, phone, the store with your phone in your hand anymore. It's about delivering value to people. So... Stakeholder interviews. Um, you guys familiar with the pig and the chicken construct? So this is a scrum, uh, an agile scrum uh, concept from several years ago. It's no longer part of the agile scrum methodology, but I think it's still an important construct. So if you want to open a ham and eggs kind of restaurant, the pig's committed to this. The chicken is only involved. 
So it's really easy for the chicken to say a lot of things and, and demand a lot of things, and in the end, the pig's the one that's got to deliver in a meaningful way. So anytime we start a project and start talking to people, um, particularly internal stakeholders within an organization, we try to figure out who the pigs and the chickens are. And it's not always evident. So some of the characteristics here are that the pigs really are committed. They have budgetary responsibility. They have to deliver or implement or maintain whatever it is that comes out of this. Um, they need the tool or the channel or the application or the portal to actually do their jobs. So it's not a nice to have for them. It's something that is required. And their personal KPIs, the things that they get measured on for bonuses and raises and promotions, are going to be tied to the success of whatever it is that you're designing. Those are the key characteristics. And that's certainly not all of them, but these are the big ones. And basically for chickens, none of those things are true. Or most of those things are not true. So chickens have opinions about these things, but they don't ultimately get measured on the things that you're building and designing. They don't need them to do their jobs. They have other ways of doing the work. So why talk to all the chickens? Anybody? Insight? What else? Less bias, Less bias? yeah. Decision making? Yeah, they may be able to influence the pigs. Expertise. Yep. Kind of all of those things. So insights are really important. Um, very often, the chickens that are brought to the table are people who have a lot of industry expertise or knowledge. They've worked for the company for a long time in various roles. They know a lot about how the business works. They know a lot about how the industry works. Um, their perspective is different. They don't have the, I can't see the forest for the trees problem. In fact, they can often see the forest. And they can generally see the forest in ways that the pigs just can't because they're in too deep with it. Um, their different perspective is often very revealing. Sometimes it's politics, too. You know, you find that that's really the case in consensus-driven organizations. When ideas have to be socialized around to a lot of different people and a lot of different departments, it's good to talk to those people, to hear what they've got to say. Um, it makes them feel like they've been heard. It makes them feel like they're part of the process. It makes it harder for them to dispute the results in the end or the direction that the project goes because, in fact, they did contribute. And sometimes it's just about therapy. You know, the airing of grievances is actually a pretty powerful thing. So when people have strong opinions, they like to express those. And sometimes it's our job to allow them to do that and to, again, acknowledge that they've been heard and that we will take what they have to say into consideration. And we can often use that to move the conversations that we need to move. So it's really important, and it's, it can't actually be understated how important that, that side of it can be. So I have a recent project. It's an ongoing project, and I can't really tell you much about it, except that it's a company that makes a professional tool. Um, we interviewed all of these people. So there were 19 stakeholders. We did it in 14 sessions that ranged from one to two hours. Um, I'm going to tell you in a little bit that I think you should never go over 90 minutes, but some of these did. Um, we had objectives for these meetings, and we interviewed people across the entire organization. So how many of them were pigs and how many of them were chickens? 
Any guesses? 19 people? How many pigs? Three. Three? There were three key pigs, yes. Um, I think there were actually seven pigs overall. Three of them were extremely important pigs. But we talked to all of them. They all had interesting things to say. Um, when we went into this, to Steve's point, we had an interview structure. We had some ideas of things that we wanted to talk to. Um, there were three things that were very important to them, to, to our, our main pigs, and that was uh, the brand. The brand is in an evolving situation. Um, the current site had a lot of issues with it, and there was a lot of frustration. And um, they wanted to gain some sense across the organization of what some of the bigger goals for their new site would be. And this happened to be a website redesign. So in talking to people, you know, again, I've kind of sanitized this since it's ongoing work, but we found out that there was a lot of pride. There were, there were themes that emerged here that were really interesting because it didn't matter who we were talking to, whether it was somebody in HR or legal or somebody in marketing. Um, they felt very strongly about their brand, that the brand was about confidence, um, that they've been in business for 30 years. They're very proud of the fact that there's a major uh, market industry um, in the U.S. that 70% um, of that market uses their tools. And that was a big deal to them. They always make it right, very proud of what they do. Um, their director of marketing had this quote, we operate on the KFC model. We do one thing, we do it right. But that was really important to them. Uh, when it came down to, doing, uh, to talking about the design and experience of the site, we had some interesting feedback here, including there's a whole lot of clicking going on, which is a really nice way of saying nobody can find anything. It's too many steps to everything. You know? um, and that's just kind of plain everyday language there. Here's the problem can't get to anything. We heard stuff like, the site's really dark, it's 50 shades of gray. And then we had to have the internal conversation of, do we put that quote in the deck when we show it to them? Because like, maybe we shouldn't, because they're also kind of a conservative company. We decided, no, we're going to put it in there. That's a real quote. That's what people are saying. Um, it's behind the times. And by the way, Josh is the number one pig. So when Josh says it's behind the times, you're going to reflect that back. Um, we heard things about content um, and technology. There were, these themes just came naturally through these conversations. And that's the important thing. There were patterns that we could find easily. Um, and we used what we heard to develop goals for the new site. So these patterns emerged. They were evident um, based on business uh, requirements that we had already and technology requirements that we had already. It allowed us to put a good framework in place. And at the end of it, this is really what it was about. They want to be able to deliver the right message at the right time um, to motivate their, their end users, their customers, to embrace the brand. It's a very elegant way of, of, of putting this in a nutshell for them. So one of the things that we're able to do from this, and again, like it's a work in progress, um, and we just presented the content strategy work. And coming out of the stakeholder interviews and, and, and learning about the brand, um, we were able to define five key areas that the site needed to address. Um, you'll see in this column, there's a stage. Um, there's content that needs to be pointed at everyone. And there's content that needs to be pointed at people who are in various stages of this. So crawl, walk, run. 
crawl people are brand new. They, they're new to these kinds of tools. Um, walk people have been using them maybe for a little while, but there's still a lot to learn. And then the run people are people who are very familiar. So we actually have a good way of slicing and dicing the content to, to deliver the right message going forward. And that's going to be a really valuable thing. Um, getting into the nuts and bolts of this about framing questions. Uh, when we go into stakeholder interviews, these aren't focus groups. We try to limit the size, one to three people. We try to include everyone in the conversation. That's a really important thing, especially on a business, uh, for, for business people. They're taking time out of their schedules to come and talk to you. Make sure you make time to listen to them. 60 to 90 minutes. It's hard to fill two hours, and nobody has that kind of free time anymore. So be observant, be efficient, um, be respectful of their time. There are often common themes that you want to get to, so think about it ahead of time and identify the themes. Um, brand is typically something that you're going to talk about if you're designing a website. Um, you might talk about the digital challenges they have. That might extend beyond a site design. Um, the goals for the digital channels, and again, different people from different parts of the organization are going to have very different perspectives on this. Um, you might talk to them about acquisition of customers, of clients. Um, and about conversion and e-commerce and how these things factor into the experience that you're trying to design. These are just five themes that we see a lot. There are many, many more depending on the individual client. With the interview questions, again, be thoughtful. Um, write the questions out. This is what Steve was talking about. Have it on paper so that you know what things you need to cover and want to cover and so that you have a framework. Don't read the questions. Don't go line by line through this. Ideally, you ask the first question and they start talking and then you use your notes to build on this. So make sure you know which questions are the key questions. Steve also said this, always have a partner. You can't possibly go into an interview, be attentive, listen, ask thoughtful questions, take great notes and capture everything that needs to happen. You can't do it, it's too much. Have somebody in there with you who's taking notes. Record it if you can. Sometimes you can't, but be focused on the job you have, which is to ask the questions, or be a great note taker. And realize that sometimes you get a tough interview, somebody who's not talkative or who's kind of hostile for some reason. And if you have two people in there, you can kind of diffuse that. The other thing about this is that it's really, it, it takes a lot of energy to do this sometimes. So your energy might be flagging, that other person in the room can help you, and they can pick up the load when you can't. You know, be casual, be friendly, be professional, smile, give them the body cues that tell them that it's okay to say the things. Um, if you're doing this over the phone, which sometimes happens, you know, laugh a little bit. Get some banter going immediately to try and build some report. You know, ask them about the weather if they're in a different place from you, or talk about the weather if you're in the same place. Anything to break the ice and get them talking. And make sure that you have fun and that they have fun. Because if you're having fun, you're going to get a lot of great information from them. And that's it. Thank you. Let's take one question, um, because that noise you hear outside is lunch. So over here. How do you get to, through the barrier of getting to talk to 19 people? Because sometimes the project manager will say, like, I already gave you 
the whole list of requirements. We've already uh, gathered the information that you need. So why do you need to talk to 20 people in our organization? We always ask to talk to five to seven people. When you see a list like that that's 19, it's because the client themselves are driving that. And then the problem is that the project manager says, well, we only budgeted to talk to five to seven people. And then we have to kind of go, yeah, but like, they think it's important, like we should do this. And we ended up actually having to present our findings on the stakeholder interviews for that particular project before we had talked to all 19. Um, we made it through 13 before the presentation, and then we followed up with the other six. And so when we did the presentation with all the content strategy work, we incorporated those findings into it as well. But yeah, most of the time it's not 19, thankfully. These sessions have been like therapy for me. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you very much, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.